When you hear the phrase, going against the grain, what, what visual comes to mind? Those who work with wood, when carving or sanding or staining, one must be attentive to the direction, the, the grain of the wood. Otherwise, you could have a real mess on your hands. When a father shows his son how to shave with a blade, with the grain, won't be as close as against the grain, but it's a whole lot easier on the skin. What about personalities, work relationships? It's easier when we all row, yes, you guessed it, when we all row in the same direction. Well, today in Kingdom Encounters, we see this concept of going against the grain in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 23, we are in the middle of the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. In just a few days, he will be betrayed, arrested, crucified, but the resurrection on Easter Sunday is coming. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. The chair of Moses, what is that? The Encyclopedia of the Bible from Bible Gateway states that the seat of Moses is a chair of honor in the synagogue where the main teacher of the law sits. The teacher exercises the authority of Moses, who originally shared the law which the Lord gave him. So why is the law important? Well, that's not really any different than asking that same question about today. Why are our laws important? I feel like we probably ought to have a working definition of what Jesus is speaking about, and and the following summations are taken from definitions in the Mercer Dictionary of the Bible uh, regarding Old Testament law and New Testament law. The Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, form the first of the Old Testament, and in that we see the whole of God's revelation through Moses at Sinai. Not only the laws, but also the epic story of Israel as a people of God, as well as traditions about the creation of the cosmos and the beginnings of the human race. Conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders of Judaism often centered on interpretation of the law. In New Testament days, the Jews focused more on the aspects of law which separated them from other races, such aspects as circumcision, keeping of the Sabbath, food laws, rituals of purity. And at the same time, Jesus, who we know, came to fulfill the law as the Son of God. Jesus is presented as one who broke the law as far as the Jewish rabbis and leaders were concerned. Jesus repeatedly violated their understanding of the Sabbath. He ate with tax collectors and sinners, which for Jews, this was defiling. Jesus set aside their understanding of law on issues like divorce, food laws, and ritual cleanings. So at the beginning of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, Because the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, therefore all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. Therefore do and observe all that the scribes and Pharisees tell you. However, do not do according to what they do, because they say one thing and do another. 
don't follow their example. And Jesus is telling the disciples to go against the grain of what the scribes and the Pharisees do. And the following three observations explain why. In verse 4, They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. These leaders don't follow their own example. These leaders don't stick to the plan they set out for the flock. And the second example, there in verse 5, But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassel of their garments. Jesus says that these scribes and Pharisees do everything to be noticed by men. They like an audience. The crowd gets their adrenaline pumping. They broaden their phylacteries. Well, what, pray tell, is a phylactery? Well, if you've got a, a copy of the old Strong's Concordance, you'll see that a phylactery, it, it's an amulet, it's a parchment capsule containing little parchment rolls with the Hebrew texts affixed to the left upper arm or the forehead of men at morning prayer and regarded as a protection against evil spirits. We see these referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You know, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses proclaims that famous scripture in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. But then listen to what follows. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Right there is a, a verse that endorses house discipleship, family discipleship. There in verse 7. And then we get to verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Do you remember ever tying a string around your finger so that you wouldn't forget something? This is a similar idea. Well, also these scribes and these Pharisees are said to lengthen the tassels of their garments. And that sounds funny. What does that mean? Well, these tassels, we first see these tassels back in the, the Pentateuch, those, those first five books of the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, in chapter 15. In verse 37, we read that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. And when the Pharisees would wear these tassels, they would stand out. And it sounds like some of them really liked wearing them. I don't think these were as flamboyant as what Liberace would have worn, or even something like the masked singer. But I'm betting that some definitely like to dress up. So the third example, there in verse 6, 
talking about these scribes and Pharisees. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. You know, this is part of the pomp, the place of honor at the banquet, the, the chief seat in the, in the synagogue, the, the proper greeting in the marketplace, the designated title, the spotlight. You know, everybody needs a little bit of attention, right? Well, they go too far. And Jesus says to the disciples there in verse 8, Do not be called rabbi, for one, that's a capital O, one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. You are not to be called rabbi. A rabbi is a, a master, a teacher. One is your teacher. Well, who would that be? That, well, that's the Lord. You are all brothers. What does Jesus mean? Well, we've seen these disciples argue throughout these kingdom encounters about which of them is the greatest. We even saw the mother of James and John, Mama Zebedee, ask Jesus for permission to let her two big boys to sit one on Jesus' left and one on his right. But Jesus says you are all brothers. Don't follow the examples of, of these rabbis and, and set yourselves one over the other. Don't be called teacher. Uh, point of reference. Does Scripture forbid teachers? Absolutely not. And later on in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul shares some of the gifts that Christ has given to the church. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, we read that he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, uh, to the building up of the body of Christ. In verse 9, Jesus says, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. We see those words in Scripture, right? Yes, but, but be it teacher or father or leader, what Jesus is against is this clamoring after personal ambition, this setting one over the other. And Jesus says in verse 11, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. We've seen this before, haven't we? The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Jesus' hard words regarding these religious leaders go against the grain of everything that the disciples and the community have seen these leaders model. Going against the grain, the challenging of one's conventions, and I'm going to use the word convention, not convictions, but conventions. They're not the same thing. The Oxford definition of the word convention is a way in which something is usually done, especially within a particular area or activity, like the phrase, when in Rome, you do as the Romans do. And there's lots of examples that we could use. I'm going to use a religious illustration. When I went to my first full-time ministry position out of seminary, I went as a worship pastor to an established mainline Protestant church. That's another way of saying it was Baptist and it had been around a long time. And this church wanted to develop a non-traditional worship service in regard to mostly worship music and some other 
elements of, of worship planning, such as dramatic sketches or videos for sermon illustrations, that type of thing. And, and we have to keep in mind, this was the late 1990s, when all this kind of stuff was new. And the general sense was that a majority of folks were on board and excited. We added electric guitar and drums a few months after the church had, had called me to serve on staff. And this was unconventional in that context. And the train, the train was rolling forward. There was momentum gathering. People were excited. Uh, folks were coming to check out the church. But as the train was rolling forward, it became apparent that there were folks who really didn't understand why the church should even offer such a worship service. And this took the entire staff by surprise. And after lots of conversations, we were able to get some clarity. For instance, some of our folks could remember a day when the electric guitar was seen as a symbol of youth rebellion, or long hair, or hippies, or drug culture. And this new, at the time, type of worship, this challenged the conventions of those things with which the mainline church was associated. This went against the grain. And I had some say that drums and stringed instruments were unbiblical. So, in one meeting, I, I asked the question, Have you ever read Psalm 150? So, we reread it together one evening at this meeting. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Well, we're all on board with that. Then we get to praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Okay. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Stringed instruments. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Ooh, dancing. Praise Him with the strings and pipe. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Strings, drums, clashing cymbals, resounding cymbals. Scripture going against the grain of personal convention. Another time I had a dear saint who has gone on to be with the Lord tell me, you know, I believe that God hears you better when you pray, when you have a coat and tie on. And I smiled because I love and I respect the man and his memory to this day. And I am thankful for his friendship and his influence. And I wouldn't dare put him on the spot and ask him to show me the scripture verse that that supported his, what he felt was a conviction, but was really a convention. The challenging of one's conventions, be they cultural or personal or religious. In Israel, you have religious leaders who teach the law, and we've seen through these kingdom encounters that there is someone, the Son of Man, who goes against their political and religious conventions. Well, why does this matter to us? Why do these 12 verses matter to us at the beginning of Matthew chapter 23? Well, are there ever times that we find ourselves and our conventions challenged? 
when we have kingdom encounters, do we ever feel conviction by the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit ever address these personal conventions which we have? Conventions, well, let's just call them what they really are, our, our preferences, our comforts. Maybe we're more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. But Jesus, this isn't how it's supposed to look. But Lord, this isn't what I had in mind. Lord, this goes against the grain of everything that I wanted. What did Jesus say in verse 12? Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. You know, Jesus himself modeled that for us, didn't he? Paul tells us in Philippians 2, With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death." even death on a cross. And you know, just as he told us in verse 12, he humbled himself and he was exalted because he went to the cross. And Jesus' humility, something happened. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf, so that we might become the very righteousness of God. Jesus, taking our sins, gave us His righteousness, the righteousness required for us to stand before a holy God. We need the righteousness of the Lord because we are all sinners. And the price, the wage of our sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, by dying on the cross, He paid the price of the wages of our sin. God showed us His great love by sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. And if you and I can come to the place that we understand that as sinners we deserve death and need a Savior, and we can step past our pride, we can step past our conventions to trust in Jesus being the only one who could die for us and be restored to life. If we confess our sin and our need for Him, if we trust in that, and we have the belief, the, the faith, that Jesus can pull all of this off, we can have a relationship of peace with God.